It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Hey. Hey, Johnny. Let me get Ty here. This is one of those fun things we have to do here. Another uh, another technical uh, adventure here. So let's get Ty, and then we should all be set. Sounds good to me. So bear with me. Uh, hey, we're going to get some reverb on this one. We may want to oh, restart you know uh, your your audio. I can hear your computer or something playing. You know, let me try this. How's this better? Uh, let me see. Yep. Yeah, that sounds that sounds good. Cool. Okay. Well, you know, we are waiting for Ty. We've got Johnny Ciotti with me. And uh, welcome to the tent. We're going to have our little chat before, hopefully uh, not too long before uh, Ty gets back on. Uh, but we are trying to have a special guest, Ty Streitman, today. And those of you who listen to the tent know Ty, and you've seen his pictures all over Instagram and and Facebook. And it should be a lot of fun to uh, to catch up with Ty and see what he's been up to down in Brazil. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this one. I and we've tried to we've tried to line up with Ty a couple of times here lately, but it's uh, you know, such is life. Schedules yeah, it's, just it's always a challenge when you're you're getting people from you know different locales. And here we have Ty. Hey, there he is. Ty, you can hear Johnny? Johnny. Hey, Ty. Um, hey, Johnny. And no reverb. We're all, we're all connecting. This is good. Let's see. Uh, Ty, go ahead and say something. Hello. <laughs> there, good enough. Yeah. <laughs> it works. I, I think we're good. Well, hey, everybody. Uh, let me just take over, do my little host thing for a second. Welcome to the tent. Uh, this is Scott Bellman, your host with uh, my co-host, Johnny Ciotti. And today's special guest, Ty Streitman. And again, you probably all know Ty from his amazing pictures. Uh, you can follow him on Instagram under Biotope Ty. He's down in Campo Grande, Brazil, right? You're still down in Campo Grande, right? Yeah, down there. Yeah. Doing, you were finishing up your post-grad work, right? And uh, where, where um, are you in that? Uh, so my master's basically, um, yeah, finished that uh, a couple of weeks ago, actually. Um, waiting for them to... Yeah, waiting for them to send over the diploma. These things take <laughs> take time That's in Brazil. Cool. Um, but yeah, yeah good so to hear. Now, 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 Ty, like as everybody knows, and Johnny knows, of course, we've been uh, we've been gifted to receive your photos over the last couple of years of the amazing underwater photography and videos you've taken for us of the you know the habitats down there in the Pantanal and elsewhere. What have you been uh, up to lately? Why don't you just bring us up to date? Um. Well, it's bit difficult dummy wham of double whammy rather because of the the pandemic um a lot of expeditions and uh research and just getting the logistics together to get out into the field kind of ground to a halt Mm. um the other problem is uh we're currently experiencing the worst drought for the past 50 years uh here in the pantanal plus the fires uh we've had i think more than 3.2 million hectares burned in this region i think in in California, it's about a bit more than three million yeah. acres, so it gives you an idea it's of three uh, times the size the, of the what scale we, here. What we've had, and we consider that crazy. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 mad. Um, 
and that just means that the habitats are either there's there's no water or very little water or they're very difficult to access at the moment uh so mostly i've been based here in kampuganji uh doing some sort of uh lab work and uh a few a few excursions out uh to a couple of trips um went to a river the other weekend um in a region that hasn't been affected by fire but uh that was um a sort of series of rapids a small kind of uh uh, hill stream habitat mm-hmm. if you like uh, and that was actually interesting because I, I thought of you guys because i was you know it's it's rocks and and riffles and and uh and rapids and tons of leaf ah. litter which was a bit surprising <laughs> um but it had me thinking about uh about you guys and and ty you know uh, you've now you've seen you've sent a lot of photos over and shared a lot of photos of the the pantanal the underwater the the sort of ephemeral pantanal habitats now you're saying with this drought, yeah. you're just not seeing those popping up this year yet, or yeah. Well, I mean, two things. One, the habitats. Um, so this is kind of the the rains would be arriving about this time, and so a lot of fish and a lot of uh, aquatic creatures are surviving in the remaining ponds and pools and streams throughout the wet, throughout the dry season until about October, November, and then they get the relief of the rains. But because we've had such an intense uh, dry season. The um, those pools and those kind of reserves have gone. So it's it's and basically. It, uh... So I'm sorry. So it's just basically a, a very limited uh, collection of of habitats right now. Yeah, and I, I spoke to a, a friend of mine, a colleague who has been out. He went out last week to the Pantanal to um, a region that I was in in February, uh, which is one of the the two of the main rivers, the Akidawana and the Miranda River here. And they had water, but he said it was interesting. They, they tried to collect and they, they just didn't find fish. There was just nothing there. Even even Purana, which are sort of ubiquitous and found everywhere, they had disappeared. Interesting. Wow. Um, yeah. And I think uh, one thing that I was going to comment about that is that same region I went to in February. And um, you've got the main river channel. And then on either side, you've got these uh, lagoons. So... Uh, areas that flood in, in the wet season sort of and they form these kind of oxbow lakes mm-hmm. um, as people may know from from the amazon and and these lakes they're connected to the river but they're normally deeper they've got quite a lot of aquatic vegetation they're normally uh, very deep uh, levels of, of silt substrate and they are the nurseries uh, for many of the fish species and also they're a place to escape from large predators uh, in the main river channel so in the wet season, lots and lots of fish move out of the main river channel into these flooded lagoons, and they use it because it's full of cover to raise fry. There's lots of food. There's lots of uh, oloxonus items, oh, so seeds, nuts, berries, <laughs> insects. Yeah. Um, and in February, we went and we snorkeled into one of these lagoons that had been burned uh, oh. previously. There had been a fire, and there were no fish. Mm. There were oh. no fish. And we looked and we looked, and we realized the substrate was just ash. There were no botanical uh, items. There were no leaves. There were no twigs. Um, and because there's no organic material, there's no macroinvertebrates. And because there's no macroinvertebrates, there's no small fish. Right. There's no small fish. There's no large fish. So we realized that that lagoon had become a dead zone. It was of no use to fish that need to breed, that need to feed enough to get into breeding condition. It was no use for fry to uh, survive the wet season and gorge ready for the hard times of the, the dry season. Huh. And so this is now being multiplied on a on a 
vast scale across the Pantanal. So millions and millions, perhaps billions of fish that rely on these flooded habitats, which are full of uh, organic material to get them through the wet season and, and boost them up for the long dry season ahead. They won't have those resources because it's all been burned. And it's really depressing. It's a disaster. Because it is a disaster because it's going to be a domino effect. You know, this year we will have fewer fish reproducing and fewer fish uh, getting into uh, fewer young fish surviving, which means that next year it'll be worse. And next year it'll be worse. Um, and it, it's, yeah, it's, how, it's, it's really depressing. How long do you think it'll take to read? Yeah, who's just going to say the same thing. Yeah, there you go. Um, well, I mean, one of the interesting things is that if you leave nature alone, uh, the recovery is normally pretty fast. So, I mean, if I would say if you had three years of perhaps, you know, decent rain and not having ranches setting large fires, um, yeah, then then the cycle could start again. I mean, there, there's studies, for instance, in um, in reefs in, in the Pacific, in uh, French Polynesia, that have been completely decimated by people hunting for sharks and collecting coral and, and, and overfishing. Mm. And it was given a, a, a conservation status. And from one year to the next, I think shark numbers went up 70%. Uh, small fish numbers went up by 95%. Wow. I mean, this was from a, a death. So nature has this rebound capacity. And, and it's similar here. We have, um, you know, an incredibly, in many ways, resilient ecosystem. It's a system that's used to droughts. It's used to fires. It's used to then being put under three or four meters of water. Um, but it's the it's the rate and the intensity of these basically uh, unusual events, the, the man-made fires and the drought that um, are having such a negative impact. And if you gave these places a, a, a sort of a breather space, probably quite quickly, you would see recovery. So, you know, uh, some of our listeners are, or maybe even a good portion of our listeners are probably familiar with what's going on down there. Uh, aside from the yeah. obvious, um, you know, climate change and, um, you know, those things. Uh, can you shed some light on what's actually happening with the man-made fires? Um, just so people can. Understand. Okay. So basically um, there's this, there's this idea, which makes sense. You know, when the, when it's really dry, you're going to have lots of fires. Uh, but if you look at habitats, so savannah habitats here in Brazil, and if you look at habitats in Australia and in Africa, when do natural fires occur? They occur in the first few weeks when the rains start. Why? The landscape is tinder dry. There's all this dead brush, all this dead wood. Suddenly there's these massive thunderstorms with loads of lightning. And what happens is the lightning strikes, uh, this dry brush catches fire. But because the rains are there, within a day or two, the fires are extinguished. So you get these really short, sharp, but frequent fires across the landscape. And that's vital. Uh, lots of, you know, recycling of nutrients and opening um, areas of dead, uh, dead wood and dead grass to, to new growth, which is vital for animals. Um, but prolonged fires, you know, are a problem. And here in Brazil, what you get is you get people clearing land primarily for, for cattle ranching. Um, and they're using the fact that it's a long drought and saying, oh, it's a, you know, this is a wildfire. Um, but these wildfires have been occurring throughout the period when we don't have rain. And fire doesn't just, you know, erupts in this way. It erupts when we have the rainstorms. So you've got very, very large landowners here. I mean, a lot of our 
you know, smaller farms here could be, you know, 13, 20,000 hectares belonging mm -hmm. to one family. Um, and there's forests that they have, uh, ironically, difficulty clearing because there are quite extensive environmental laws in Brazil that mean, <laughs> you know, you get fined if you do that. But if it's lost to fire, well, you know, it's an act of God. Um, and so lots of uh, fairly large ranchers are using this opportunity to, to clear land. Of course, a lot of these fires, they get out of hand. They jump across property lines. We've got fires um, in Bolivia. This is taking place there as well and in Paraguay that are moving across the border. They can even jump across rivers. Um, so very quickly, it's a situation that gets out of control. Um, and the, the standard rancher's technique is, you know, they, they, they open the land through fire. Um, they can graze cattle on it to initially, you know, get rid of any remaining brush. And then um, the soil is tilled and planted for soy plant, principally for soy production. Um, and at that point, there's, there's very little chance of that landscape uh, ever recovering. What kind of soil do you typically see down in that Pantanal region in, in the um, flooded areas? Is it podzolic soil or is it something a little different? It's a good question. It depends. I mean, this is quite a large region. So where I am in sort of southern Pantanal, um, the soil is almost red. I mean, there's a lot of minerals and, clay. and irons. Yeah. Um, our, our football stadium here is called the Big Brown, um, which is a bit, not a great name, but because it's the soil and the city is sometimes called the, the Big Brown um, because it's this really reddish brown, uh, very thick uh, clay-like soil. But you've got other areas where it's very loamy or, or very sandy. Um, within the Pantanal, I think, in some ways, as you would see in the Amazon, um, so the initial layer of the substrate is obviously lots of uh, humic material, lots of organic materials, you know, decades, mm -hmm. centuries and of, stuff. Yeah, of leaf litter. And, um, and, but under it, it is a sort of a clay base. I mean, because of the, the geological formations here, the, the entire Pantanal Basin is, if you can imagine, like a, a soup plate that's kind of been tipped at an angle from mm -hmm. north to south. And so the, the rains start in the north in, in Mato Grosso, in the southern, in the sort of the belly of the Amazon. And then all those waters are draining southwards across this sort of clay basin, um, right to the, the, the periphery here in the south, where we've suddenly got uh, these cast rock uh, geological formations, where they have the famous um, the crystal rivers in, in Bonito, uh, that mm -hmm. people sort of may, may know, um, which act like a barrier to the, to the floods. So, um, yeah. Sorry, convoluted answer to your question. Sorry. That's, uh... No, that's a good, that's a good answer. You know, I, obviously we're going to segue into aquariums and, and, and we're going to talk, first of all, I have to have to bring, you have to bring us up to date. Uh, Ty told us a couple, few weeks back, you had a, a flood in your home, right? You had your, one of your aquariums. I had, a, disa <laughs> I had a disaster <laughs> and it was a lesson. Um, so I had a, uh, I'll have to translate this into US gallons, I'm afraid, but I had a, a 640 okay. liter uh, aquarium so it's a 180 by 60 by 60 centimeter tank yeah. um and i had uh, just taken out all the plants in the in the, in the uh, plant soil to help a friend of mine set up a big planter tank for him and he would bought that stuff and i thought well i'm going to set it up as a blackwater tank i think i sent you the photo right of right. um you know blackwater tank with these really large uh, angels uh, angel fish and um the night that i introduced the angel fish uh at 11.30, there was this incredible bang. And um, half the front pane of the glass had just 
just gone. It just came out Ugh. in this big semicircular thing. And yeah, I had um, a lot of water. About a hu- and 180 had... gallons of water on the floor right there. Yeah. And a hundred odd fish, you know, tetras and, and the inch- fish under the sofa. Fish in... I mean, the water took, <laughs> carried the fish into my bedroom, which is down a long corridor. Um, and I mean, this is a, you know, a tale of, uh, of the world. class one disaster. Yeah, yeah. And of course, my first thought was I better turn off the, the, the heaters because they're going to overheat. And then there's, you know, right. and of course, everything was wet, including me and my bare feet. Mm. And so uh. when I went to turn off the, the heaters at the wall, I got shocked. Uh, my feet were in contact with the wet floor. So the, 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 the current just kept going through me. Um, That's awful. That was not fun. Um, I rescued quite a few of the fish and then spent the next uh, five or six hours throughout the night to the early morning uh, cleaning up. Um, it was, yeah. It, and this is not the first time that a tank has, has gone on me, but this was the worst. This, you know, this is the one where I, and I realized the, I had the tank custom built by mm-hmm. a guy who, who's done tanks for uh, a number of people here in the city. And I realized the issue is probably likely the, the glass, uh, wasn't a great quality and it probably wasn't thick mm-hmm. enough um oh. and so the, the the moral of the story is if you can afford to get a tank made by a, a company that does it rather than some guy who makes makes tanks in his garage um do so and yeah it may cost you that extra extra bit of money but you will be you'll be thankful <laughs> um <laughs> and it's, it's you horrible. know i was very lucky you know i that that tank sits on a stand that's built like a bar. So normally I eat my dinner, sit and f- sat in front of the tank. So had I been there when it exploded, that you know the two meter that pane of done. glass would have just cut, run into my neck or my chest. Yeah. Uh, so the, yeah, these sorts of things you you can't you can't take shortcuts. <laughs> that's a good <laughs> this point. Kind of stuff. We, we, yeah. We say that all the time. I mean, you have patience and shortcuts. Now, you know, what's the plan now? Are you going to set up smaller tanks and new tanks um, or, what, or are you going to kind of hang out until you move back to yeah UK or what, the, what's the deal the, the tank is currently covered in a really big bed sheet with a tropical motif so i don't get depressed every time i look at it <laughs> um and i i have a smaller tank which is a planted tank um so all my energy is going into that because uh, yeah as you mentioned that uh, in the end of december i probably moved back to europe um and it uh there's not much point in sort of setting it all up again or trying to fix it um, so I'm putting my energy into the platinum tank and into my uh, garden tubs as well. Yeah, those are pretty cool. Uh, tell us a little bit about those. I, I know you shared a few pictures of those. Yeah, so I've got these um, kind of uh, people may have may have seen them in their travels in Latin America. A lot of houses have a sort of uh, 500 liter or, or 1,000 liter uh, water tank, water butt uh, on, on the roof or in the garden. And so I bought a couple of these when I moved here. I painted them white to try and make them look a bit prettier instead of kind of electric blue um, and filled them with aquatic plants in, um, in vases with, uh, with some soil. And I've got various tetras and corridoras and things breeding in there. And I've got a, a children's paddling pool, a 2000 liter paddling pool that I used some <laughs> um, uh, wooden pallets to make a sort of uh, edging around it. And then nice. um, there's various sort of, things breeding in there I've, i think i've got some small killifish that are breeding in there um uh, do you know what species uh melanohivalus uh no sorry um melanohivalus punctatus i think is in there um, are those an, an annual or that is that uh, i'm not familiar with that genus it's not an annual um 
sorry, the neighbor's dogs are going a bit nuts here. That's um, okay. We've got the garbage. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. They, uh, new neighbors moved in two weeks ago with their dogs. So this has been fun. Um, so they're not an annual killifish. Here in the Pantanal, mm-hmm. we've got several species. Um, the annuals that we have here are a bit further south. And uh, sorry, it's just really noisy here. That's okay. That's all right. Um, but you do have one annual that you had that, Noth- isn't it? Nothalibius minimus campo grande. Remember I had yeah. that species for a while and I thought, oh, that's your local killie, right? Which An I understand killie. is is uh, extinct in the wild because they built the Campo Grande shopping mall on top of the, the only uh. pond where it could be found. Um, uh. So, yeah, <laughs> that, that's difficult. So- I mean, we've got, uh, we've got um, a killifish habitat uh, about 30 miles from here, which is a, a depression at the edge of a highway. And the depressions were uh, built when the highway was constructed. So they, they took the, the grit and the soil and these things flood and they, they fill up with um, hair grass and uh, water lilies. And um, we found a, uh, another killifish there um, that isn't an annual, but they... It, it's only found kind of in that those few ponds in those in those meadows and that, mm-hmm. that entire landscape is being converted uh into soy production as well and, and wow there's drained. like a common theme here uh, <laughs> yeah. this is this is depressing uh the depressions yeah. are depressing yeah. um you know yeah. i find there's a great amount of irony that the uh the fish has gone extinct from the wild being um you know, sort of suffocated by a, a shopping mall, which is also now an extinct thing due to the coronavirus. So maybe <laughs> nature will come around and <laughs> I, um, that's that's a perfect. Fix it all. Uh, I think that encapsulates well uh, humanity in that you know we're wiping out these species that seem insignificant to us, but our own decline is kind of predicated on on their decline as well. Um, mm. Yes. Erode the foundation until you have nothing left to stand on. Yeah, I, let's do I, it, guys. I, I don't know if you guys in the states uh, you have this game uh, Jenga, the, the the game with wooden blocks. Yes. The tower. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, I built yep. this game when I did some uh, environmental education in some r- rural bits of Brazil here, and I did it with kids. But I found it works really well with adults. Um, you get your blocks, and the lower blocks you put stickers on them, and they are the ants, they are the lizards, the frogs, the little fish. Um, the flies, the mosquitoes, and as you go up the tower, the animals get bigger. So right at the top, you have you know your jaguars or your elephants, depending on whatever region. Um, and you tell the kids to remove some blocks from the top, and so they, they pull off the, the block at the top, and so the tower biodiversity is reduced, but it's still there. You know the, the block is still there. But then you say to them, okay, now pull out the block with the ants on at the base, and the whole tower starts creaking and threatens to fall. Yep. And it's like just this really easy way to explain the importance of, of the smaller uh, smaller animals to, to biodiversity and, and, and avoiding uh, biodiversity collapse. Um, and that's the same with aquatic habitats as well. Yeah, you know, you, we, we've talked about, and I know you and I have, and Johnny have talked about this before as well, uh, the importance of the little creatures, the fungal growths, the biofilms, the insects, the allochthonous input from the trees, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Has, has your experience in Brazil and really seeing these natural habitats, you've always, let me preface it, you've always been big on biotopes, yeah. realistic aquariums, but has this experience now sort of changed the way you think you're going to approach your next set of aquariums when you finally get yourself situated again 
are you going to approach things a little differently, use a different methodology based on what you've seen in nature or how's that impacting you as an aquarist? Um, I think, I think we, as you know, biotopacrists can take quite a lot of pride in the fact that when I, when I go into the habitats here, I see things that people are doing in their aquariums. So it's not so much that I go into a habitat and I think, wow, I really need to change the way that I, I set up my biotope tanks because I've been inspired by so many other aquarists before getting to know these habitats. And I realized that those guys already had the right idea. I mean, the fundamentals are mm-hmm. if you use, you know, botanical products, if you build up a leaf litter base, if you let your tank mature, you get, you know, microorganisms in there that fish feed on. And that is what happens in these habitats. Um, I would say I'm also uh, thing that has, has sort of changes, you know, how much the overlap there is between say, uh, a planted habitat and a, one that contains leaf litter um, or mm-hmm. even a, a kind of rheophilic, a, a stream habitat um, and leaf litter. You know, there's, there's always this idea that, you know, a blackwater leaf litter tank has to be this no flow, sh- um, you know, kind of devoid yeah, of plant static kind of environment, um, no plants. So there's a lake which has now dried up. Uh, a couple of miles outside of town that I was in, I think I sent you those photos. If you remember, it's a habitat for the, the, the serpe tetra, the, the red Mato Grosso tetra. Oh yeah. So really deep tannin stains. You couldn't see more than a few meters, but I was snorkeling in that lake and it was maybe two or three meters deep at the deepest. And it was just stuffed with uh, uh, red cabomba, which we know is a cabomba furcata or pink cabomba. It was mm-hmm. stuffed with uh, Mayaka fluviatilis, uh, Eleocaris species, lots of lilies. I mean, it was choking with, with aquatic plants. And yet, it was a tannin tank, if you like, <laughs> um, in terms of visibility. Right. What happens is those plants don't grow quite as densely um, as you might see in you know, your, your aquascaped CO2-injected high-intensity planted tank. And fish right. didn't care. Um, they weren't worried how many, you know, leaves were at every node along the stems of the plants. What, what they were worried <laughs> with is, was their cover, was their food, um, and was this a decent habitat to be in? And judging from what I saw, it was. Um, and as I said earlier, I went to this, this stream, uh, the, the, the Rio Verde recently, um, and below the riffles, below these small waterfalls, um, you get these huge accumulations of, of leaf litter in amongst the boulders. And so... There were species like uh, Leporinus uh, octomaculatus, uh, which were grazing on those. Oh, yeah, uh, fairly yeah. sizable. There was a uh, armored catfish, which is uh, Hippostomus chimera, was grazing on this massive uh, leaf that was just, you know, stuck under a pebble. Um, and hmm. uh, things like data caracins, the caracidium uh, zebra, were hopping about amongst the leaf litter, nice. picking up, picking off small microorganisms. So. It, it taught my experiences here basically taught me, you know, the overlap between what we think of as, as, as biotopes or, you know, a planted tank or a leaf litter tank or a hill stream tank, even within a, a relatively small space uh, is considerable. Um, and, and, you know, it makes sense that fish would in, enjoy that. Uh, we don't particularly like um, staying in, in sort of a, a concrete car park we'd rather have somewhere that's got some trees as well and maybe a lawn and you know so right it makes sense that, that they would appreciate that too you know johnny and i talk about this all the time but 
and, and then I know you have talked about this before too, Ty. I think a lot of it also is, is us as Aquarius accepting a different look, a different yep. aesthetic from mm. nature as it is versus how we yep. want it to be. Um, and, and I think we've talked about this before, but um, we've been developing kind of our own line of substrates to sort of replicate some of the soils that yeah. you might find in these ephemeral habitats like that. I think that that goes hand in hand with what you're talking about, building the biotope from the ground up, yeah. sort of, you know, with the, the leaves, all that stuff. I think that's an interesting approach. And I think it's a it's a longer term approach, obviously, because would, would you add fish right off the bat to your new tank or would you let stuff break down or how, how would you if I was using a if I was using a tank? substrate like that, um, you know, I'd give it time to cycle. Um, but it's interesting because it's kind of like a reinvention of the wheel in some ways. If you think back to, you know, aquariums in the 90s and the 80s where you had an undergravel filter and your gravel acted as your your filter base and was the basis of all all, right. all life and fish doing well in your tank um and now we've got external right. filters and internal filters and, and all this but we still really value as you guys have produced a substrate that acts as the basis for all life in the tank and does the bulk of your filtration and you know perhaps even feeding right. your fish um and yeah i mean here i'm a lot more confident setting up a leaf litter tank um and having you know organic materials in it fairly early and introducing fish that than i am say introducing them in a, in a planted uh tank uh with a, with aquarium substrate or even just with an inert substrate because i know that the biological right. actions that i need are, are going to be taking place so much faster in, in the in the botanicals tank and that's a fundamental shift in aquarium keeping, yeah. I think, I mean, or at least that's a, that's a, that's your, you're bringing light to something that we've probably all known, but we're afraid to embrace yeah. as aquarists. Uh, again, Johnny and I talk about this all the time, that, that, that mental shift to looking at things fundamentally differently than we've been doing in the past, not to be like rebellious, but because it's a yeah. better way. And, you know, I find that fascinating. If you think of like, sorry, go on. No, I was just, I was going to piggyback from that. It's, it's embracing what nature actually looks and functions like and not what we want it to look like and, and letting go of some of that yep. control. Um, yes. You know, I mean, maybe we should, uh, maybe we should introduce a new product. That's a, it's a called the future series and the substrates just um, cement and um, we can provide, <laughs> you know, some, some uh, like old candy wrappers and maybe um, like a cinder block is aquascaping I mean, materials. And we just put that in a section on the website. And You, you, you joke, Johnny, <laughs> but I always say that the reason I love fish is because there's a fish for every, every imaginable body of water. I mean, there's, there's a puddle in a desert, there's a fish. Um, there's a stream, you know, yeah. 10,000 feet up a mountain, there's a fish for that. Here in the city, we, have a, we had a river which has been concreted. Um, it now has concrete banks and a concrete base. And when it floods, you know, it's, and it's lots of effluence and sewage drain into it. It is thick with armored catfish and tilapia that have been introduced. Um, and Corridor, oh, and Corridoris yeah. Aeus just thriving in this concrete uh, substrate, sewage fill, <laughs> uh, drainage ditch. Um, I mean, I, I think it's like the drainage culverts that you guys have in, in Los Angeles that you always see, you know, uh, in movies, you know, people driving yeah. up and down. It's basically like that, but we actually have water in it. Um, and that's Los actually all we have in Los Angeles. It's well, yeah. the entire <laughs> city of a system yeah, of uh, drainage out, ditches. Yeah. You're you're just missing out on the on the on the schools of Corridoras catfish. But yeah, I guess what I'm saying yeah. is, you know, that 
fish are, are remarkably adaptable and there's always a species for every environment but if you can match a match a, a species or a community of fish to what it would naturally encounter so in terms of the substrates you, you're talking about these sort of more natural based substrates being able to provide that to fish that would live in such a habitat that's going to make your aquarium a success um yes there are species that can live off concrete basically um but those are kind of the most ragtag hardcore you know species grazing fishes yeah um go on sorry well uh, no i was gonna say based on now your experience down there is there a fish or fishes that you've kind of either gained new respect for new interest in and that you're like thinking wow next time i set up a tank i'm going to build a community around them or replicate their environment and build something for them yes um one of them is the, the black neon tetra, which is, you know, one of the most commercially available and, and you know, produced on a mass scale. Um, about uh-huh. three hours away is the town of Koshin, which is the type locality for this species. And um, it's, I went there in 2018 and I was hoping to go uh, next month, actually. And um, what impressed me was that these little dainty, tiny tetras were swimming in a level of current that was just pulling me away. I had to grip onto to roots and boulders not to be swept away. And it was a kind of tannin-stained habitat. There were aquatic plants. There were leaf litter. There was uh, open sandbanks. Um, there was very dense kind of humic material as well. But in the center of the, the river and along some of the steeper banks, the current was really strong. And they were just, they didn't mind. They were, they were swimming. And a lot of the tetras here that I think of as being such a you know, fragile species or I see them just swimming out in current that just would sweep me away um so there's quite a few i uh, think that i've uh hemigramus rei which is also quite a popular fish black oh, flag yeah, yeah. black line yeah. tetra um black line tetra, the yeah. the red eye tetra uh the version in the hobby is moncalzia sanctophilomene but we've got its cousin which is moncalzia forestgi um they they're mm. perfectly happy in very strong flow and actually seem to thrive as long as there's a bit of the tank that they can you know go and and chill out uh, behind some cover or behind some uh, driftwood or something. Um, and so that has made me kind of keen to set up in some way a, like a leaf litter tank with quite a lot of flow. So the leaf litter will, uh, will, will uh. accumulate in a corner somewhere or be caught up between the rocks. But I can also put species in that uh, will benefit both from the, the microorganisms and from the tannins, but also appreciate flow. And I think that that's... That's quite exciting because, as I said, it's a step away from that sort of static vision of a um, a tank without any flow and, and not much going on apart from being tea coloured. Can you, yet, oh. yet again another change? Yeah, oh, I'm sorry, John. <laughs> so, go, go can, you, can you shed a little more light? Chime in just just a bit more on how flow should be uh, playing the design of aquariums. Um, you know, using uh, what we know about nature or what you know about nature um, and sure. how it should really that. I mean, I know I've talked about it at nauseum, but I would prefer if somebody else did. Um, I think depending obviously on the size of the tank, if you can have an area where there is considerable current, but also sort of not dead spots, but quieter spots. Um, so you can achieve that if you had a small tank by just using a very large canister filter, for example, so you get really good filtration and quite a lot of flow. And then just the way you place your hardscape, the way you place your rocks, where you place your wood to ensure that there are some uh, areas that fish can go when they need to sort of 
get out of the, the fast lane. Um, the, also, the number of products in the market now. So you've got the um, the Max Spec gyres. I don't know if you've seen those. The mm-hmm. the, the pumps oh, that yeah. they use for reef tanks. Very, very so I've yep. used them uh, for a hillstream tank with uh, Stifodon gobies, and it's brilliant because mm-hmm. it really replicated the flow. It was you know this circular flow. It's not just a, a powerhead throwing out uh, a, a stream of, of concentrated current. It's this broad current moving across the surface, goes to the end of the tank, comes back, and is drawn back across the substrate. Um, those are sort of high-end bits of tech. But if you use them in, in a medium-sized tank or in a large tank, I think they're pretty good investment. There's more uh, similar products coming out. I know I think it's worth a lot of us sort of who are really keen on freshwater, it's worth casting an eye on what's going on in reef tanks sometimes because yes. there's so much kit and equipment that, actually we could use um particularly in, in terms of generating flow um in in, in our freshwater creations um but print, i think the principal thing is providing current and providing uh, a place where fish can can chill out as well interesting what what do you think in terms of filtration now johnny and i even we just teased and talked about this before and we never quite did the, the podcast we were going to do on this about tanks with no filters or very limited filters or essentially the tank is the filter and you're working with filter you know yeah. circulation and stuff what are you thinking a more natural style system should be filtered with or does it um, matter is it really more about motion than than filtration? i think it's so if you had a, a medium-sized tank with uh a really large stand, for example, of uh, papyrus plants. So like a riparian kind of system. Um, you pretty much don't need a filter. I mean, there's, 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 they are such good biological filters. They're so efficient. Um, some of the best tanks I've, I've set up have largely, the filtration has been based on, on the plants. Um, I've got a, I don't know if you've seen, I've got a, a tank back home in the UK, which is about 300 litres. Um, and there's a really large, the Asian, is it that Asian one? Um, it's the one, uh, George Farmer rescaped it for me last January, um, with various sort of mosses and crypts and stuff. It's, it's got a big oh, canister filter, but if we have a power cut, I don't stress because it's a, a room temperature tank and I've got this huge philodendron that's growing up the wall and its roots are in that mm. tank. So, you know, the, the, the power could be out for a week. doesn't matter that plant is sucking out all those, those excess nutrients and, and keeping the water quality uh, balanced. Um, I think for those of us who are keen on recreating tanks that represent a particular habitat or look like what we'd see in nature, there's so much scope for using um, semi-aquatic or marginal plant species to do the bulk of our filtration. Um, you may want a small pump just to, you know, for some, some water movement, some surface movement, um, lifting up particles, but a lot of a lot of fantastic plants that you could find in your in your local garden center um, can do a lot of your filtration. Well, you you know you mentioned papyrus, and one of my favorite photos. You know, I've used this one a million times in blogs and articles, and we featured it on Instagram. Is that one you took? It was an underwater shot of a of a area yeah. of papyrus where there just was like rotting papyrus leaves or whatever yeah. you call them stems and stuff down there. And you said it was just filled with fish. And I thought that was just one of the most amazing that that sort of says a lot to me because it shows nature doesn't waste anything. 
and there's something going on down there, biological activity that we could benefit. From exactly. I think we've just been afraid to do it. Well, the, you know? as you said, the, the, the breaking down of the, of the stems and, and the leaves, uh, small organisms live off that, smaller fish and, aqu- and aquatic crustaceans feed off them, medium fish feed off those. I mean, having a botanical uh, products, organic material breaking down is, is the basis for so many aquatic ecosystems and, and the food chains uh, that, that, that are found in them. So, it makes so much sense to do that. In so as an, yeah, as an ecologist now, you think that it is possible to replicate on some level the food chains that take place in nature in a closed system. Yeah, correct? I, I, I mean, I did it with my sparkling gourami tank. Uh, my first kind of real attempt at a, an Asian blackwater tank um, I had a, a 90 centimeter by 45 by 45 centimeter tank. And I, I don't think I even put sand in. I just put tons and tons of catapa leaves, just so many yep. and some bits of wood. And then I had, I think, uh, 10 sparkling garamis in there and I just didn't feed them uh, after the first few weeks. I just, <laughs> and um, they yeah. spent... I, I did the same thing. I remember that. Thing. I love that. Type thing. Thing. And what I found yeah. is, yeah, I mean, yeah. it's slightly... Um, is brutal is also, you know, putting things like, um, depends how biotope, you know, uh, uh, I want to say, uh, anal you want to be, but you can, so that the cherry shrimp near Karidinia, you can get some lovely clear green tiger type versions, um, getting those into botanical tanks because they help breaking down, um, the organic material. They also feed off the microorganisms, um, it prevents the buildup of, of detritus or gases yeah, building up and dead zones because these little shrimp are in there constantly turning over stuff. And as they're working, and I noticed this with the sparkling garamis, the shrimp are kind of there and, and, and happily grazing away and lifting up bits of material. And then they would suddenly uncover some morsel and the sparkling garamis started following the shrimp around. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm sure the garamis, you know, picked up a couple of, of baby shrimp from time to time, but hey, they were, they were all in great condition and the majority of the shrimp were fine and I didn't need to feed anything. Um, it, yeah, that was a closed system, if you like. Well, and, and you know, I, you, you do these little ponds that you were talking yeah. about outside where the fish is, you said you have tetras just spawning and growing up in that unmolested and unbothered by yeah. you or anybody. Do you think the same thing's possible in an aquarium, like a permanent, more or less permanent display where the fishes are just breeding and multiplying? I mean, I know it happens incidentally, but do you think that you could perpetuate a spawning and rearing cycle without having to do a whole lot of I think you, a, lot a lot of, of fish species, you could trigger it just with a decent water change. I mean, if you've got uh, you know, a healthy organic substrate in there that's providing lots of microorganisms, lots of proteins that these fish are eating, if you've got... Um, say, as we discussed, you know, filtrating plants in there that are helping you with the filtration. And amongst those root networks, you will also have small organisms living and, 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 and young fish can take uh, refuge in them and avoid being predated by adults. Um, and if, especially if those fish are, are neotropical or, or African species, you do a sudden water change and the water's cooler, you may trigger a lot of spawning behavior. Um, and if you've got that nice, lo- soft, loamy substrate for eggs, scattered eggs to fall down and... and and basically they're cushioned as they land and they seep into it less likely that the adults will, will eat them. And then you've got that cover mm-hmm. uh, in terms of leaf litter and in terms of root networks or, or plants for the young fish to, to, to hide in. I don't see why that wouldn't be possible. I, you know, 
I, and Johnny, you correct me if I'm wrong, but I wrong. believe that, that <laughs> yeah, yeah, right off the bat. <laughs> but I believe that that type of a system would work for a lot of fishes that are otherwise known to be delicate or troublesome in the aquarium, both in keeping and in spawning, because they're feeding off natural foods. It just makes the acclimation process to captivity that much easier. I just I think there's I would, something there. I would agree with that. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. There, there's a funny thing that Ty just hit on that I've experienced myself, not only with um, the sparkling grommies and the same neocardinia, but um, with the sudden water changes, I, I will oftentimes with fish that you just otherwise don't get to you know, exhibit any sort of breeding behavior or spawning. Um, after I do a reset where I'm going to use the same fish, but I'm going to do a new aquascape. Mm-hmm. Uh, I throw all the fish in a bucket and they're sitting around, uh, all of my aquariums stay at room temperature, but, um, you know, I throw in new water and it's a new tank and everything. And then all of a sudden it's like pandemonium. <laughs> you're like, Oh, okay, cool. This, this is great. You know, the, you're, you're getting everything that you wanted out of it by simply just disrupting the environment to a degree. And, uh, you've got triggers, some kind of genetic it just, programming. It just and triggers it. Maybe they're like, Oh, we're all going to die. Let's <laughs> breed. Um, so maybe fish do as well there's two two elements to that in the one hand that a lot of our species here spawn during the flood period so appearing in a sudden new habitat might be simulating moving out of the main river channel into flooded habitats where there's tons of food and cover and yeah let's go let's breed um the other thing depending on the species is you know many even in tetris um many species have a, a hierarchy and they establish that hierarchy and so serpe tetris for instance or, or tiger barbs you'll see them you know nipping at each other and and once the hierarchy set right. it, it kind of stays that way but when you suddenly mix up the habitat and all the territory and the lines of sight and everything else has been changed you may suddenly get these little upstarts who think well hey now i'm going to be the boss we're in this is a brave new world and yeah <laughs> i'm going to try it on with that fat female over there um to hell with the, with the guy who was dominant before. Um, so you may find right. that, that, that that takes place as well. And then... So a purposeful disruption, yeah, I don't, sort of. I don't think there's anything wrong with, uh, obviously, you know, <laughs> not not tearing it apart with the fish in it, but um, rescaping things, changing things around. And in fact, in, in, in many uh, cases, it's, it's healthy to do that because changing the lines of sight. So... Um, as you probably know, angelfish can be terrible at bickering with each other. And they also have this hierarchical mm. system and you may get one that gets constantly picked on um, because he just can't get out of view of the dominant uh, member of the group. And so that's changing a, that scape, so interesting. changing the scape and oh, suddenly there's a new spot he can hide. Suddenly, you know, the, the, the swimming patterns are changed. So he's not always in the line of sight of that dominant one who's like, hey, it's you again. I thought I, I thought I'd kicked you to the curb, you know. Um, we're going to have to fight again. And so that, particularly in cichlids, um, that's quite a common technique to to avoid uh, long-term or constant aggression. You know, I, I think there's a metaphor in here that economists and um, policymakers need to possibly embrace themselves. It's just, uh, hey, maybe we need to disrupt things and change line of sight. Change, change, <laughs> change things. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe changing things would be good. Um, well, not to make this political. Uh, political. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say politics yeah. comes to Although, mind. Although, <laughs> you know, note of caution: Chairman Mao and the Cultural Revolution was a similar 
Uh, <laughs> similar ideas. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's the equivalent of the concrete. Yeah, let's not get into like uh, Trotsky no, or, uh, but, you but know. But it's a fair yeah. point. As you say, the, the need um, in politics for, you know, new new perspectives and, and breathing space for new ideas and, 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 and collaborating together in different ways is perhaps the same in that, yeah, change the decor of your fish tank around a bit and give your fish community, you know, something new, something fresh, a different way to live. Perhaps they will adapt to that differently and in positive ways. Um, we, we, we are ourselves, of course, just animals. Um, and right. we, we, need, we need changes too. Well, we've talked about this before, sort of the idea of a perpetual aquarium where you're not changing the, the operating system, the biology, so to speak. You're just changing up the physical aquascape so you're keeping the substrate going you're maybe adding things on top of it maybe adding leaves maybe adding new wood maybe taking stuff out the tank continues different population of fishes or the same fishes in a different setup i think it's sort of analogous like you said to what happens in nature i think that's a huge takeaway that these environments i don't want to say are ephemeral but they but they change they evolve over time um so that's a big takeaway where we tend to be static in our aquarium interpretation and not, not just evolving over time but i mean so yesterday we had a rainstorm there here, lasted about 20 minutes. And it rained more than it would in, say, six months back home in the UK. So all those pretty much dried out habitats mm-hmm. and habitats with just a few millimeters or a few centimeters of water, suddenly they've got new habitat. There's suddenly loads of uh, debris in there. There's uh, leaf litter and twigs and branches and plants and all sorts of things that yesterday weren't there and today they are. Um, and fish make use of that because they know, oh, well, there's, there's food there, there's habitat there, there's shelter there. Um, so some of these changes can take place very quickly. And, and as we see, we've seen, they can be the stimulus for uh, spawning behavior or changing changes in the dynamic of, of the group. Um, I think one of the joys with creating a biotope aquarium is that you really are, if you're doing it carefully and, 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 and researching yourself, you are recreating a piece of habitat in a glass box and you will see the same uh same events and same consequences and and, and same rhythms as we see in nature happening you know but that's a huge takeaway and and that's one of the things that we jeremy and i talk about ad infinitum is that the the idea of the traditional idea of the biotope corn the thing that bothers me anyway is, is people tend to do it as a I don't want to say a diorama, but as a snapshot of, you know, yeah. just capturing the look. But if you leave these things set up for some extended period of time and really foster those functions that you're talking about and those changes and those environmental evolutions, it's far more interesting to leave one set up for the long term to really get the benefits out of the system. And I just don't think we do that enough as aquarists right now. It's about getting the shot on the ground and moving on. To you're right. One and, you yeah, know. That, that is somewhat obnoxious. The mystery fish uh, in a in a biotope you know you, you might be talking about a specific region but uh you know you're putting a fish uh, that swims at an oblique angle in in you know inundated branchy environment and uh and then you go stick it in open water and it makes no sense or you're seeing better um you know in a, in a heavily planted um area and uh, what wouldn't be planted in nature nature doesn't plant yeah. i guess um, but you do that inside of an aquarium and, um, you know, and vice versa. And you're like, this just looks so odd. Uh, it doesn't really make any sense. You're not seeing the behavior of the fishes. What, what, one of the things that Scott yeah. was saying there is, you know, the idea of letting the, 
the tanks kind of mature and just adding more material. And one of the reasons that we haven't been doing that, I think, in the past is that, um, and here I get to do a bit of product placement for you guys, is that the, the, the botanical products that we use, you know, <laughs> oak leaves or beech leaves, just weren't that interesting. It's like, oh, well, let's just throw in some more leaves and they'll cr- break down to this kind of black shredded mess and then the fish will swim around, it'll cloud up and, okay, I better siphon it all out. And yeah. But now Time we've got it you, know, the, right. you guys, you've got seed pods, we've got all these wonderful woody debris that takes ages to break down. We've got a huge variety of leaves with different colors and textures and sizes and shapes. You could just, every time you add new stuff, the tank looks looks awesome again. It's this kind of complete makeover of, oh, wow, I've got a layer of, of botanical stuff in there that's, you know, it's slowly breaking down. I've now added all this new stuff and the tank, yeah, it's it's refreshed. It looks really cool. And every time you do it, you're you're repainting your canvas in a way. Um, and I think, yeah, and Just exactly. And that will encourage yep. people right. to be more open to the idea of having a long-term kind of biotope. Like, I can just keep this going. And and it gets exciting. Like, oh, this time I'm going right. to buy some of these things or, or some of these pods or these seeds, you know? And, and again, it's about less of interpreting it the botanical style aquarium as we call it as a as a aquascaping technique and more of a functionally aesthetic yeah. way of managing an aquarium a, a methodology as opposed to and i think as soon as we get that out of our head that it's not like oh it's using some new cool piece of aquascaping wood or a material or what no no it's about adding stuff that has a purpose not just to make it yes. different but to function different um I think that's a huge thing. And I have one question for you before I forget, because it's on the tip of my head. When you talked about these environments as they, you know, as they change over time throughout the season, do, is there a succession of like which fish you find first? Like the early colonizers are such and such a tetra. And then later on you see this yeah, or that or the other thing. Or, there are some species that constant? are kind of, um, you find them everywhere and all the time. So my, uh, in my field work, there were two species um, that we found in every habitat at every time of year in each of our collections. And one of them was Hyphosobrachonekis, the, the, the Serpe tetra, Mato Grosso tetra. Um, hmm. And mm-hmm. the other one was uh, Serpinus caliurus, which is this quite small uh, little silver tetra. Um, they just, wherever there was habitat, there they were. And then there are other species that, for some reason, just disappeared. So um, largely carrots, small caracins, so we've got one here, which is Hyphosobrachum megalopterus, which is the what we know as the black phantom tetra, except here they're not black. The, the wild mm-hmm. version is a brilliant red. I mean, they're, they're stunning. Um, but you can go six months where you, all you find are Hyphosobrachum megalopterus, and then a year and a half where they just, for some reason, they're not in that habitat anymore. Um, and that may be linked to the, the, the environment itself it may be linked to competition with conspecifics. So one of the things that's, that's really curious is that this fish, which looks exactly like the Serpe tetra, they school together, they swim together. So how are they not in competition for the same resources, the same food, the same... You know, how do they do that? There must right. be some differential uh, that lets them do that. But if, if huh. that differential ceases to exist, well, one of them isn't going to last. Um, and in this case, the ones that seem to lose out are the, the black phantoms, whereas the, the red the serpe tetra stays on. Um, there's other species. So um, in the, the freshwater needlefish that we have here, uh, Potomahaphis aigonmanai, that's a fish that, yeah, sometimes you'll go, you, you just don't encounter it. And then there's a glut of them. 
and that tends to be in the in the flooded season when suddenly they're moving into uh, recently flooded habitat there's lots of terrestrial vegetation covered in grasshoppers and crickets and flies and spiders and all sorts of other things that stumble and fall and land on the surface of the water where these uh, surface dwelling needlefish uh, can snap them up um, corridoras as well so uh, we've got um, corridoras hastatus which is the, the dwarf cory that's another species that for some reason in one place and at one time you can't catch anything else and then you'll go months without finding them and I, I don't have the answers as to why that might be but hmm. it, it shows how these you know the fish communities in a particular habitat they fluctuate over over space and time um yeah it, you know it also shows how intimately tied yes. fishes are to their environment or their aquatic environment and i think that that's something that's another takeaway for aquarists it's not just it's not just enough to say oh give this fish you know uh, tannin stained water with a pH of 6.2 or whatever. It's more like what what is it that, that these fish need to thrive and what is it that attracts them to that type of environment? Is it but often more often than not, it sounds like it's yep. food or, or other resources as opposed to just, you know, oh, the water conditions are right. Because is it my understanding that the, the temperatures and pH, the pH levels you see are more um, or less constant throughout the year? Temperature can change a, bit, or how, a lot. How does that work? I want to um, get an idea on that. Yeah, I mean, During so short of time uh, a couple of weeks, of a month ago, we had a cold front come in. So it went from uh, 36 degrees in the day mm-hmm. to uh, eight degrees. Wow. And obviously it takes time for the, the waters, you know, wow. to, to, to temperatures to drop as well. But at night, sometimes we can get frosts here in the winter as well. Um, and, and that's Celsius, yeah, so, guys. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's our prerogative as we, you know, guys, when are you going to learn something besides this metric <laughs> um, crap? Come on. But basically, I mean, so water temperature is normally kind of around 26, 27 uh, degrees at the higher, higher end in, in the Pantanal, but it can drop drastically. As I said, you can wake up in the morning and there's, there's frost. Um, there are some species that are really quite hardcore. Um, there's Cyclosoma dimerus, which is a sort of really robust, chunky and you know, cichlid. Yeah. Um, I found them in, in temperatures where I would melt, um, where oxygen levels were non-existent, um, where they've been torn apart by water birds and piranhas, you know, their fins are shredded. A lot of them have, um, injuries around the gills because they're caught so many times by water birds, but they've got these spines. So the bird tries to swallow them head first, uh, ends up damaging the fish, but can't swallow it. (laughs) abandons it and the fish falls back so we were collecting all these cyclosoma that look like sort of zombies we we're like why is this but we realized they are so hardy <laughs> that they are the species that survive for the longest period in these draining habitats mm. in high temperatures low oxygen very shallow they're the most easily caught by water birds but it's difficult for them to be consumed so they have this these morphological uh, advantages that just let them basically sit out uh, environmental conditions that lots of other fish succumb to. Um, we've got the so the giant hatchet fishes here, Triporthius, and they've got this kind of adapted uh, lower lip that they ex- extend out and up to the surface, and it lets them uh, take atmospheric air from the the surface of the water, so they can survive when there's oh, wow. oxygen crashes here, which happens quite a lot in the Pantanal because in the wet season everything floods. 
suddenly there's all this organic vegetation underwater and it starts to decay and die. Um, and you get this massive boom in, in bacteria and uh, decomposing material. And um, the, the plants, the, the, sorry, the, the oxygen level crashes. Similarly, in the first few days of the flood, sure. the plants are still photo- photosynthesizing and you can actually get um, uh, super saturation of oxygen levels. So then you get gas bubble disease in fish. So we were finding these small mm. juvenile cyclosoma were being forced to the surface um, because they couldn't dive down. They had, they had so much oxygen sort of imbued in, in them. Uh, and then they were being picked off, ironically, by water wow. birds. And in supersaturated habitats, the only fish you find are the very smallest tetras. Um, and it's the same when the oxygen crashes. Everything larger either dies or leaves the habitat. So this links in because it yeah, requires too much oxygen. Exactly to what you yeah. said that fish are so tied into the habitat at that particular moment and place, and either they have the adaptations to survive, or they leave, or, or they don't. Um, well, and that's a beautiful thing to illustrate. There, we, we talk about it in botany. We, we talk about it in, in plants. We also talk about it in corals. Um, things don't live; where they live because they like it it's not preferential they live there because other yeah. things can't and uh, people often i think mistake uh with the aquarium environment or with anything's environment of going i can set this up because that's what they like no no, no. They, they're literally surviving you need to give them the environment that nothing yeah. else lives in um, um, <laughs> it, it's it's a different way of of having perspective um you know, I like to live in a mid-century environment. Why? Because people that like garish stuff can't live there. So, <laughs> what about um, your your nineteen sixties flamingos? I mean, <laughs> I, I actually I have one of those. Uh, that's that's one. Of my favorite Do you have a special dispensation? To have yeah. one of those. Um, yeah. Just it just <laughs> well, kind of fends um, helps me fend off the. Uh, the thing I, I think this like. is one of the one of the joys of I mean, joys. Uh, say that with a caveat of, of the social social media age and the digital age that we've got people if you go on instagram now there's so many people who are uh highlighting habitats and and, and showing underwater f- footage or uh recreating biotopes based on places that they're from so if you look at like the the international biotope competition i think quite a few of the the southeast asian tanks are set up by people who live in indonesia or live in malaysia and they're like, oh, yeah, I just walked down yes, the track and I, I saw yeah. this cryptocorn-filled leaf litter, uh, you know, uh, peat swamp. And I thought, yeah, I'll set that up. And, and then we get to see that created as a tank, something that, yeah. we, you know, 10, 15 years ago would have been really niche and would have been really hard to see. Um, and I think that's, that's wonderful because it can inspire so many more of us to go, well, actually, you know, I might not live in Malaysia or Sumatra, but. I can get the species, I can get the material, I can get, I can, I can recreate that in my mm-hmm. own living room. Yeah. What do you think the next, God, I hate saying trend, but what do you think the next, I don't know, evolution or the next, <laughs> just say trend, I don't know, idea. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm like painful on that. Yeah. What, what do you think the next trend in aquarium keeping is or, or the next evolution? What do you think people are, should be doing more, will be doing more based um, on what you've seen and what, you, that's, what you're feeling? I think it, it depends so much on our, I mean, we, we've got a very Western perspective of this as well. Um, and also if, if you want to say European or American perspective. So um, 
It depends on what somebody next is going to do on Instagram. Yeah, but like here in Brazil, (laughs) you'd think that in our aquarium shops here, you would have your choice pick of the most wonderful Amazonian species, right? No. Here it's guppies, platies, um, and really, really angry Central American cyclids. Um, And and that's what people (laughs) want, and they want betters, and they want tiny tanks, and they want colorful gravel, and they want castles. Um, But if you go to Japan, uh, you will have (laughs) the best quality plants, nano species uh, you could ever you know want you could go to germany you'll have whatever the most remote difficult to find amazonian catfish will be in a shop in germany um so the the trends also depend on kind of what is culturally popular what is popular what is being popularized in the hobby so as you know you know japan and germany have a a long history of of planted aquaria and the germans in sort of weird and unusual species from from latin america the Japanese in a particular kind of aesthetic, you know, the nature aquarium. Right. Um, I'm not so sure how, what is in the States, but my experience yeah, in, I wanna... living in Los Angeles years ago was, you know, uh, acrylic tanks, big cichlids and, 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 and cheap fish that re- were reared <laughs> in, in, in Florida, but not uh, quite. Yeah. It, it, yeah. It's really hard to predict. Well, I, I was going to say that, Right. Well, now, you, you brought something up. I'm going to put you on the spot again because this is something that Johnny and I beat the crap out of every yeah. time we talk. The term nature, or I, not not picking on nature aquarium, but the term nature or natural oh, yeah. seems to be appropriated by everybody that wants to, just says they're doing something different. Do you think that term is better <laughs> used in the aquarium hobby? I'm totally setting yes. you up for a response, but I'm, I'm curious. Like, what You're going to get in trouble with people. People are going to send me angry <laughs> yeah, exactly. memo seg. <laughs> They're going to say you angry South American cichlids. (laughs) Yeah, basically, um, I mean, this is perhaps a sort of uh, snobbish, I don't know, perhaps it's reverse snobbery, because now Nature Aquarium, if you look at the competition, the ILPC, whatever, every year, what wins are dioramas. Right. Oh, I've recreated, you know, the Andes in a fish tank. Wow. Okay. How are the fish doing? Oh, they're all pallid and they've got no cover and they're stressed. Yeah. Okay. Like, if you look, yeah, the rocks are great and the underwater are really amazing. I think, and and it's listed as nature aquarium. From what I understand, from reading Takashi Amano's books, he had this kind of the the idea of you know the tank had to be good for fish and it had to be aesthetically beautiful. And that that was the balance. It was achieving a balance between healthy, happy, content, as far as we can judge fish, and something that appeals to the human eye. And a lot of the dioramas, I look at them as a person who looks at fish in wild habitats, and I go, oh my God, those fish are really probably not happy. They are panicking. And also the application of, as you said, let's stick the badge nature on it. And now now it's valid as you know, an aquarium. You know, I, you know what I worry about, Ty? It's not so much that I, I'm, I'm pissed off that everybody's using the word nature. It's that what, what happens is we just spent a half hour at the beginning of, the, of this episode talking about what's happening based on these fires yeah. and, and climate change, all that kind of stuff. And these environments may not be there in the future for our kids or our, our grandchildren or whatever to see. And here we are, proffering a natural setting as this, you know, Peruvian Andes underwater, like you said, 
when these people never actually bother to look at a photo like yours when they see this mucky, dirty water, blah, 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 because they're aspiring yep. to produce the perfect Iwagumi rock setup and not looking at nature where our fishes really come from and saying, this is really a lot more interesting and quite in line with what Amano, as Johnny could say, because Johnny knew the guy, it was quite in line with what Amano was proffering back in the day. But we've somehow gotten ourselves in this mindset of, you know, yep. this is what natural is. It's like, no, natural is the I, stuff I'm, I'm guilty of it too, in that, you know, I, I snorkel in some of the rivers here and I see, like, uh, for instance, Mirifilum aquaticum or Ludwigius. They're just choking with this green, thick filamentosus algae or this brown algae. And I'm like, oh my God, that looks awful. Like, if I was, you know, how horrendous. Right. But. <laughs> that, that's that's nature that is a natural tank and the fish are loving it they're picking at the algae right. they're diving in amongst it there's chronicicla the pike right. cichlids are kind of raising their babies in it and i have to catch myself and think well hang on you know what what is your view of of what is natural i mean it's the same with um it the idea is that going forward you know in, in the future we'll look and say oh this aquarium is representative of a, a natural habitat well no it's not it's not covered in algae it's not brown and murky. Um, there's not, you know, a layer of ash and a Coke can in there somewhere. Um, and I, it reminds me of, um, <laughs> I've been reading a book, uh, which is called The Unnatural History of the Sea, which is, it's pretty hard going because it's kind of, oh, this species we eradicated and this species we eradicated. And, but he, he the author talks a lot about um, nature's capacity to, to rejuvenate. And one of the things he discusses is our perspective, our view of what nature and what natural is so he talks about um baselines so when we think of uh, humpback whales okay we think that fifty thousand humpback whales in the world is um is a healthy population of humpback whales because 100 years ago there were like two thousand. so this is a, and this is a healthy you know this is enough that there's right. uh, plenty of genetic material going around but he he looked with a, a team of scientists and they looked at the genetic diversity of the current population and they were able to extrapolate from that and don't ask me how how many whales existed at at certain points throughout history based on the current diversity of, of genetic material now and he was saying that before just before humanity really started to take off across the planet there were something like and i will have to check the book again but he said around 200 million individuals of one species of whale. Wow. <laughs> and he said the reason that is is because the oceans were so, so rich. It could support that. It could, rich and They could support that. And, yeah, productive. And my point yeah. is that we, we look at what nature is in a, in, a, in a fabricated environment, in a fish tank or in a zoo or in a, an aquarium. And we think, oh, this is what it is. Um, and this, this number of fish or these kind of plants or this, you know, that's what it it's not and it, it, it wasn't right it's not it doesn't look like what it looked like 100 years ago or 50 years ago or a thousand years ago so it puts even more onus on us to examine what those habitats look like now because that puts attention on a lot of these habitats that are that are in danger and and to celebrate them say so, yeah okay the peat swamps right. of java are being destroyed and drained and logged what? and dried out so hell let's set up a really accurate tank showing those habitats and get people interested and, and get a discussion going um, because how many people in the, say in the, the nature aquarium competition who are using uh, SPE respores, trigonal stigma SPE, 
understand that the habitat, the natural habitat of that fish mm-hmm. is being destroyed um, at a rate that in a, in a couple of years it won't exist anymore. Exactly. Exactly. And, and, and worse yet, I can see literally in a few years somebody saying, well, where did oh, yeah. this Tetra come from? Oh, the fish store. It's like, no, you're completely forgetting the fact that this fish has a natural environment. It might be far yep. removed because for 100 generations we've been captive breeding them. But you're not going to change the genetic makeup of the fish and its ability to live in that type, at least in my opinion. Ty, tell me if I'm wrong. You're not going to, just through a few generations of captive no. breeding, it's not going to fundamentally change the genetics of a fish so that the optimum well, environment is this crystal clear tank the, with calcium, you know, calcium rock and all that stuff. Even cl- classic example that, now, of course, is the, the zebra pleco, um, which, you know, as you guys know, many people were, were breeding them. And, and, and the reason is that the, the Belo Monte Dam on the Shingo River has destroyed their habitat. The rapids that they come from no longer exist, mm-hmm. that they are mm-hmm. essentially going to be extinct in the wild. Um, but they are in the hobby. Yeah. And, you know, people do keep them in sort of breeding tanks and, and fairly static and not a lot of flow and maybe a lot of a lot of rock work. But what they come from is, you know, high flow, algae covered rock faces and boulders. And and if you can recreate that, you will get the best out of your animal and you'll be giving them the best. I think we spend too much time doing what's convenient for us, you know, like discus. Oh, they can, they can live in 8.3 and spawn and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But don't yeah. They come from water that is a 4.9 to 5 point, whatever pH murky filled with leaves. Uh, yeah, sure. It's easier for most people to recreate the 8.2 tap water inversion and the fish will live and even breed, but I can't help but wonder if they'll do better. I mean, that's just people, though. I mean, they would rather go to McDonald's and, and get a number three <laughs> than to, um, you know, uh, gr- grill a piece and... of, uh, you know, sustainably wild line tuna. caught, uh, you know, tuna or salmon or something that's not uh, right. and, and, and lightly steam some asparagus tips. Uh, you know, that's just not something that they're going to do. Um, I think accurately painting a picture of what uh, a habitat was supposed to look like as well as what it looks like now might help not only create better aquariums, but maybe just trigger a bit of conservationist um, or conservationism Mm -hmm. in, in individuals. It might be a healthy thing for everybody. Well, I mean, just, just highlighting what what you did here, Ty, about literally how those environments function and how the fishes come to be in them and, there's so much there for us as a chorus to unpack. And I think people need to go beyond that superficial, you know, Oh, give them a, you know, acid water and, uh, you know, planted, you know, whatever it, we're, we're so caught up in the way things have been done for so many years in the hobby of a hundred or so years now, it, there's so much more to it. And it, it's, it, I'm hoping and thinking that with our little tribe of people that are into the kind of aquarium that we're into, more people are starting to look back and go, well, what's nature really like? That's why I love the fact that you spend so much time sharing those videos and, and photos from the underwater habitats because everybody, if you notice the reaction you get on Instagram and, and, and the best part is that the kind of fish who will appreciate that sort of stuff are the people who are freaking out about it. I mean, I, I don't, I don't post it to get the likes. Yeah, right. I post it because I know that somewhere someone is setting up a tank of an obscure forest stream and they really want to know just what it looks like for that particular species. Um, and then they, they contact me and say, oh, I'm, you know, I've had, a, yeah. I think, three tanks this year in the International Biotype Competition were based on uh, 
photographs and videos that I posted and, and the, the guys, the, the guys who entered them got in touch. Yeah, I was really pleased. What a compliment. That's amazing. And the guys got in touch with me. Um, That's cool. you know, super they, they, cool. They got the GPS coordinates and the water parameters and, and everything else. And I mean, one of them I, I, I looked at and I just, I couldn't believe what he'd recreated. I thought, wow, if you showed me this and said, this is a photo of that stretch of the river taken underwater there, I would have said, yeah, all right. But it, it wasn't. It was, you know, a tank that he'd set up. Um, what you were talking about, Scott, earlier when you were saying, you know, this is the way that things have been done and this is... One of the things I think people need to realize and that, that I've learned, and I think we talked about this before, is that when a, when a fish is introduced into the aquarium hobby, normally, you know, some collector goes out and if it's either found in, in its type locality, so the first place it's captured and described, or it's collected from one particular point, um, that those are the conditions and that's the environment that gets passed down the line. Oh, we caught the fish in this place at this time the water mm. was right. was this was the ph this was yep. the hardness this was the 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 temperature uh this was the flow and these were the the rocks okay but does that species only exist in that you know 300 meters of a river um these the diversity of right. habitat right like you the know, black neons you know that i was talking about earlier we found them in in flooded grass meadows with very little flow um and sort of knee-high water and then in a really wide you know powerful bumbling black water stream um they were there too so who is to say oh well these are the only conditions as with discus um that this fish can can thrive in of course there are conditions that they will spawn in and that tends to indicate they're pretty happy um What do you think? I mean, because this this brings up something, and and at the risk of getting into a, a long winded esoteric answer, how do we how do we interest not just the hyper niche um, side of the hobby or that one segment, but everybody to be um, interested in 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 exploring the mundane thing that nature is uh, is is different and unknown as it is. And getting into the mud, how do we get people to want to submerge themselves in a, um, you know, a, a, a slu- uh, like a, I, a, a gross lagoon, you know, a flooded gross lagoon? Like, how, how do we there. get them to do that? I mean, it's like when they say, oh, why, why, why do people, why did people get into ships and sail to what they thought was the edge of the known world? Well, because they, you know, they wanted to find out and curiosity. And I think if you can a lot of people you know they see what's in the store they see what's in say the posters or or, or a little bit of literature or in often the, those kind of um very simple fish keeping guides you get you know setting up your first aquarium here is how you that's that's what they see and so this is what they think that right. the, the standard is is but if you can say if you can somehow expose them through uh, through media through talking through showing images through showing images of what the ha- wild habitats look like showing species in those habitats those who have that little um, element of curiosity that sort of spark that's waiting to, to ignite something larger will will go for it will i mean that's what happened to me i i was 18 19 i walked into my local aquarium shop and you know i i didn't know that much uh, about particularly tannin habitats i knew about rainforests and so on and the guy behind the counter, James, who's now a lifelong friend of mine, um, I was looking at various 
fish and I said, oh, I want to set up an Amazonian tank. And he, he started talking about, you know, black water system. And I was like, what? Um, yeah. And he was like, well, all the fish on this, uh, on this yeah, bank of tanks, they're in what we call a soft water system. And you can use this, uh, this, uh, like peat extract to do it. And it's actually really easy and look at all the, and I, that was it. I was hooked. I was like, wow, I'm going to set up something that looks to some degree like the habitat that these fish are swimming around back in, in Amazonian Peru. Um, and it was only because someone said, these are your options. Look at this. Isn't this cool? Look at this image. This is what the habitat looks like. And that's what it, sorry, a hummingbird just nearly hit me in the head. Um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, that, yeah, I just got a bit. So, only, only in Brazil. Um, that's what it takes. And, and showing that there is more than, you know, colored gravel or, or basic planted tank or, you know, there's room for that. There's room for every kind of tank in the hobby. But just showing that it's there, and that, sorry, that was I, a convoluted, long-winded answer. Absolutely. <laughs> no, no, that was good. That was good. But I think that it, it's about the indoctrination to the hobby that we do with that we do with the course. And I, I think that's why Johnny and I get a lot of questions. They say, "Can I?" I'm really fascinated by the type of aquariums you guys feature in your Instagram feed, and blah blah blah. Can I start with that type of aquarium? Yes. I used to think, oh, you know, it's for advanced. No, it's actually, I think it's actually, Johnny, just you said it right there. Yes, I, I yeah. think it's actually easier when you don't work against what nature does. When you understand it, it's far easier than trying to create a planted, you know, high-tech planted aquarium where you have all these things you're juggling around. And uh, I've talked about this with George Farmer many times. And George has a beautiful, on his podcast, beautiful real how-to thing on how to set up one of these high-tank systems. But what I like about yeah. What George is doing, he's also saying, you know, that's not the only way to set up the tank. You could do it a very easy, low-tech way. And people are so so conditioned to there's one way to do something, and I think that that's a great disservice. Or that it has to be complicated I, I think, to be um, beautiful. One of the responsibilities, right. or one right. of the places where change could be enacted is if hobby stores took on a responsibility to set up a, a blackwater tank. Like, I mean, in terms of resources, some some play sand, some branches, some leaf litter, and a really big shoal of some, you know, Amazonian or, or, or Southeast Asian species, or some really nice cichlids in a blackwater setting in a, as a display. That's how someone who's walking around a, ta- a shop and looking at, you know, yeah. the cost of a planted tank, or a bit worried, or a bit, you know, uncertain, and then they come across this natural-looking system, and perhaps their interest is piqued. And it's explained to them that actually, compared to, say, setting up a planted tank, this is pretty straightforward. Um, yeah. You heard and, it here first, shop owners. <laughs> you must well, order today for your shop tanks. Uh, Ty when said you it. Hear it less as a style. Yeah. yeah, when you hear it less as a style and more of a and, methodology. And, and I mean, I think it's a better way to look at some it. blackwater tanks that have almost a kind of a minimalist appeal to them that would work really well in, in, in some modern homes or in yeah. modern shops. Um, and I think also, yeah, pretty much. And there is, there is literally the fear, obviously a display in a shop. It has to have a function. It has to sell something. So, you know, you have a planted tank so you can market fertilizers and substrate and plants sure. and a blackwater tank. Well, you, you're putting on show a whole range of species um, that are really beautiful. You know, many of our most colorful wonderful uh engaging freshwater species come from blackwater habitats and so you can say well actually the tank you set up is fairly simple but look at this huge array of animals that you could keep um and they all require fairly similar conditions and once you've mastered that 
go for it. Well, it lowers the barrier to entry for success as well. I mean, the Blackwater Aquarium is the most simple yet most complicated on both fronts. You can literally do nothing. I have multiple aquariums that I've thrown in the materials and not aquascaped it at all. Just literally thrown them in and people are like, that's beautiful. Like I didn't do anything. I did nothing. I filled it with water. But I bet you have that and allowed it to be like, um, a lot of aquascapers have sounds like you have it too. Like George farmer, when he aquascaped my tank back in January, I had bought these like little sort of pea gravel pebbles and he was like, oh, we'll just scatter some around this way. And he kind of just casually tossed them in and they seemed to fall as if <laughs> someone had you know, calculated exactly. exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's how Johnny is. He's done that with me. We'll give, will you give me the same rock yep. as Johnny? And, and his will look great. Mine will look like someone took a rock and just placed it down there. The best exercise Johnny ever did. You remember this, Johnny, when I set up my last Blackwater tank? Yep. I, I was frustrated. And John's like, dude, just, just pick up some of these mangrove branches and freaking place them in the tank and i did that and i just swapped them in in 10 yep. minutes it was one of my favorite tanks i ever did because I just went with it some people's their technique is it's better it's but not technique I, I mean and this is where i sound like <laughs> i rub crystals in someone's basement um it, it couldn't be further from the truth but um you know i view aquascaping more as being a catalyst or being a a, a vessel or a tool for whatever you want to call it nature of the universe to put things yeah. on display. I'm getting out of the way. I'm not doing it. I, I'm doing it already. I totally agree. I, that's a good... The, the closest I get to that is when, when I do leaf litter. You, you know, I, I boil my leaves and, and all the rest. And then I just throw them on the surface and I kind of walk away from the tank. And depending on the way that they fall, uh, depending on the flow, that's, that's kind of how they're going to stay. Exactly. You know, nature's been doing it that way for millions of years. It's pretty damn good at it, you know? You know, the thing, too, that I always worry about, the only worry I have about this whole new interest in botanical style or blackwater aquariums, and Johnny and I have talked about this incessantly, is, again, the interpretation yeah. among the more superficial parts of the hobby where they think it's a style. Yeah, it's not a style. It's, it's, a, it's an aquascaping style, you know, because you see, I'll see brands now saying, oh, our blackwater aquarium is looking great. And it's like, you don't understand, I mean, no one, we're not allowed, we're not the people that are supposed to say, this is not a Blackwater aquarium. But my point is, people aren't making the effort to understand what, what it's about. And, and I, that saddens me because, like you said, these environments are in peril. There's so much amazing stuff to uncover. Just, you know, I spend a lot of my day reading scientific papers that are way over my head, but about, like, these weird environments and so forth. There's so much material to yeah. unlock from science from, or from the literal just going what you do field work just looking at a pond or a stream and we're so caught up in copying the other guy's aquarium going ah, it's the yeah. i want now far be it for me to tell people what to do Stop but i just think we owe it to ourselves <laughs> yeah exactly johnny's johnny's my subliminal suggester but you know what i mean it's like we have to just look at more of your pictures it, and less of right, it's joe's award-winning aquarium because it's interesting you say that like i think we're missing yeah. something, Stop something looking at that joe's i do we're keeping ourselves like saying, so <laughs> i like to go on pinterest and like look up biotope tanks or but what I should be doing is going on Pinterest and looking at underwater habitat or yeah. Amazonian stream or, you know, African pond or something. Yeah. Not looking for the, yep. the, 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 the finished product. Welcome to my someone world. else's, yeah. uh, you know, aquascaping, but starting, you know, from, from the roots, literally. Yes. Um, 
And I, I mean, I do that in some sense that I can exactly. look at my own photos and my own images and think, oh, that's how I want to you know, set up. Um, but I suppose we also have to accept that many people get inspired or get interested in biotopes or from looking at photos of tanks. So I think George Farmer, um, he has two Blackwater tanks that I Absolutely. basically imitated. One is this tiny little 60 litre uh, Espe Rasbora tank that he did with oak leaves and a couple of branches. Um, and another one, which back in 2009, mm-hmm. he set up a Rio Nanai tank, uh, like a 120 tank with some Nanai angels and some Ruminos. And that, and I was doing like a not a very well paid job as a gardener. And I think nice. I spent most of my monthly salary on the wood that George had used and tried to select similar pieces. Actually, the tank looked <laughs> nothing like what he'd done because I didn't have the same <laughs> technique. But I, I was from then on, I was determined I was going to achieve that. I was going to do it. And, and that was from looking at someone's finished product. Um, <laughs> of a you know a stylized beautifully you know someone who's got an aquascaper's eye yeah but it's now years later that i'm i'm so used to seeing sort of the chaos of, of of natural underwater systems and appreciating well actually the fish don't care if all the pieces of wood are at a you know 90 degree angle um you need to recreate yeah you need to recreate what what that habitat actually looks they'll find like, a way to exploit um, it which is generally yeah pretty chaotic You know, uh, it, I think this is a good time to point some of these things out because we, we may have not covered it so much in the beginning. So if people want to check out, say, your yeah. aquarium work or if they want to just check out what you're doing um, in your research, uh, where can so, they yeah, see those things? Uh, um, your Instagram channel, Instagram, where else? And also uh, Biotopia um, on YouTube. I've got a, a YouTube channel where I'm trying to post kind of videos of, of the habitats that I see. Um and I've got quite a lot of a sort of backlog of material that I want to want to put up there, um, but that those would be the sort of the two places. Uh, in, Instagram is probably the easiest. I, I tend to post sort of short videos and, and photos of habitats up there, um, and people can always you know message me and should should feel free to message me. I do have quite a few people who who get in touch with me and say, "Oh, what, what was the pH in that habitat?" or "Can you tell me what other species you found there?" or "Did you see any aquatic plants?" And I, I've made some good friends this way as well. Um, I had a two-hour conversation with Tom from Germany like a couple of weeks ago because he liked some of my things and then accidentally video called me when he was trying to message me. And we had a you know two-hour conversation, him in, in Frankfurt and me in Brazil, um, about like the habitats here. Um, and I love those kind of moments. So, I, I, yeah, if people want to get in touch and, and look at the material there, that's, that would be wonderful. That's awesome. And of course, uh, we're going to force you to, yeah. to send us some more images to uh, to share with people, too, because that's our tribe. You know, everybody's into this kind of stuff. So we definitely we're going to have you as usual. We're going to have you back again in, in uh, not too distant future. We'll have another one of these discussions because we learn something new every time we talk to you. And it's, it's, this was really a fascinating one. And the reason I'm <laughs> it's, we're now at about the hour and a half moment, which is probably about the limit of as long as most people will listen, no, that's... <laughs> even though this one was pretty compelling, but I think we probably want to wrap this one. Um, yeah. Johnny, do you have any more? One, one more question. If, um, you know, there's going to be some people that have listened and, and are probably feeling a little bit of inspired to maybe make a difference or to um, 
possibly even just donate. Is there an organization or is there anything that they can do to better help, um, you know, maybe combat some of this habitat destruction or I um, think just simply support the efforts? It's of difficult for me to like uh, what they're doing. name particular organizations because there's, there's, there's so many and I don't want to pick sides. But in terms of what people can do, sure. it's just of course. just just read, get interested. Um, I think going on, for instance, uh, I, I read a lot of the BBC and the Guardian website. If you go on uh, Guardian Environment, there's lots of interesting articles on there um, go- about global environmental issues, but also um, about the kinds of people who are uh, so environmentalists in Latin America who are the most likely to be murdered in any part of the world. Um, there's quite a lot of articles about about them and the kinds of people and it mentions the organizations that they they represent. I think it's just basically opening the, the book of the internet and and getting interested, um, looking looking at fish that interest them, and then researching them a bit further. So, uh, I mean, seriously, fish is is a great website, and and Fishbase. Um, there's also the California Academy of Sciences website. Um, yeah, which if you yeah, which is it's been for taxonomy. I've actually yeah, used that a few times. Yeah, it's very, very... Delbeek and Richard Ross yeah. are up there, right? But if you imagine yeah. Yeah, someone, oh, I've exactly. seen this tetra. Yeah, it looks really nice. I looked up on Google. It was on Seriously kind of Fish. Cool it mentioned it comes from, from this river basin. I'm going to look up that river basin now. Oh, I'm seeing some of the threats that are you know, impacting that place. And I'm seeing some of the other species that are found there. That, that is already, you know, it's just that, that, uh, that growing of consciousness, like, um, you know, like roots between so many trees, you know, that, it's got neural highways between roots that, that's being researched now. It's the same with between people who have a passion and a wonder and a desire uh, to help nature. Is it, the more we go out and learn and open our eyes and and, and read, that can only be a good thing. Um, and I think I think it can have a a really great impact as much as as donating to a particular organisation. Profound words. There you go. <laughs> yeah, very profound. And I think that that is an excellent spot to end this. And Ty, <laughs> thanks so much again for uh, for taking the time to uh, to talk with us. And I'm sure everybody's going to be excited. We're going to have great. a dozen questions uh, on this thing, and we'll have to have you on to answer those again. And uh, Johnny, as usual, awesome insights, and, and it was a lot of fun. You're welcome. Everybody, thank you so much for tuning in. Fantastic. Thanks for having me, 